not sure who the scripture reader is supposed to be today. So I'll read. All right? Beat them to the punch. Um, no, we're actually going to read two passages of scripture. But before I, before I get into it um, this morning, uh, two things. Um, there might be a couple of more sheets out there if you're interested in, in grabbing notes for the sermon. There's some questions on there that will guide our, um, our journey through the text this morning. And also, um, speaking of the New City Catechism, which we've been reviewing every week, I just wanted to plug a couple of resources. Um, we have a devotional guide out there in our bookstall, um, and then also a hard copy of the catechism itself with, it's kind of in big picture form for kids and adults and families to review together. There's also an app available that's free that you can get all the questions, and there's some scripture songs on there, actually catechism songs, the, the answers to the catechism put to song. So there's lots of resources out there. Check these out if you're interested in using them in your family or just individually as well. Okay, so if you would, turn with me in your, in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to read verses 19 through 31. But before you do, before I read uh, Hebrews chapter 10, I want us, I'm going to read for us Acts chapter 2, which is the text that we're using for this sermon series as the sort of overarching theme passage for the whole series. So let me read from Acts chapter 2 this morning, and then we'll read from Hebrews chapter 10. Acts 2 and verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so we're, what we're doing is we're walking through these aspects of the early church uh, that they were devoting themselves to. And last week we began with the apostles' teaching. This week we're going to start a four-part explanation ser series of sermons on fellowship. What does it mean to be devoted to the fellowship? That's a rich word in the New Testament. It's going to take way more than one sermon to unpack it, so we're just going to set it up today. And to do that, I want to turn us to Hebrews chapter 10, because this passage is important as a foundational text uh, to make fellowship happen. Because if you don't meet together as the church, and we're not getting together regularly, we can't have fellowship. So what we're doing this morning is underscoring the importance of gathering together with the church, of meeting together as the church. And there's perhaps no better text in the New Testament to underscore the importance of that than Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 31. So those are the verses we are going to read now, and then I'll pray. Hebrews 10, 19 through 31. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's pray. Father, a sobering text sits in front of us. A text that is inspired by your Holy Spirit for our eternal and everlasting joy and good and blessedness. And it all hinges on us meeting together. Do good to us this morning as we've prayed and sung that you would show us yourself and impact our lives and our hearts now through this time together in your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just this morning to uh, underscore the importance of, I think, this sermon series that we're doing, I've been working through, a, a, I do a, a daily devotional through, many of you are probably familiar with Table Talk magazine. It's a magazine that's put out by Ligonier Ministries, and they do daily devotionals, and I've subscribed to it for the last several years and enjoyed it. Well, just this weekend, uh, the weekend devotional for February 17th and 18th, 2018, is the following. Church matters. And here's what the writer John Payne says to uh, me this weekend, and I think to all of us. Is the local church really that necessary for the Christian life? Aren't there better, more relevant ways to thrive spiritually as a Christian, he writes? Sadly, some doubt the importance of the church because they have been burned by unfaithful church leadership or wounded by a nasty church split. Others are tired of the hype and superficiality of consumeristic megachurches. Still others, due to a deficiency of biblical knowledge, downplay or even reject the organization, authority, and ordinances of the church. George Barna's research reveals contemporary attitudes on the matter. He writes that many evangelicals, quote, are less interested in attending church than in being the church. He goes on to explain that a large, quote, segment of Americans are currently leaving churches precisely because they want more of God in their life, but cannot get what they need from a local church, end quote. Payne goes on to say, this would all sound supremely spiritual, if it weren't so profoundly unbiblical. The church as organism and the church as organization must be distinguished but never separated. 
God ordained the visible church as an organization for the gathering, protecting, and perfecting of the church as an organism, the members of the body of Christ. Therefore, being the church should never be divorced from being committed to a local church. And then he concludes with the following. It says, Christians are never stronger in isolation from the faithful ministry of the local church. We need the church. The local church plays a principal role on almost every page of the New Testament. What is detailed in the book of Acts is not an individualistic approach to spirituality, but a clear devotion to the life and ministry of the visible church. The Bible everywhere assumes that believers will be vitally connected to the church. And so this morning we come with that reminder to this word fellowship. We see that in the early church in Acts chapter 2, when this new church was born through the preaching of the gospel and conversion and baptism and people being added into the membership of the church, that one of the things they devoted themselves to was being devoted to the fellowship. Not just fellowship, but actually the church. The fellowship of the church. Now, I wonder what you think of when you think of the word fellowship. It's a church word. We throw it around a lot. We have fellowship halls and fellowship meals and times of fellowship. But what is it? What is it? And are we defining it the way the Bible defines it? While fellowship is social, it's much more than having coffee and cookies together after church. Biblical fellowship goes deeper. The term Luke uses for fellowship in Acts chapter 2 is a much broader term than our English word. Fellowship is a recognized closeness where people share and contribute to a common cause together. Let me read that again. Fellowship is a recognized closeness where people share and contribute to a common cause together. Essentially, it means joint participation in something. It's a shared project. It's sharing something in common. It's a kind of partnership that exists between a group of people. Fellowship is essentially a united bond between a group of people for some purpose. That's what fellowship is. It's a united bond between a group of people, like a church, for a common purpose together. The Greek word, as maybe some of you have heard, is koinonia. That's the Greek word that's so rich and contains so much more than our English word fellowship communicates. But koinonia, or fellowship, in the New Testament is used in at least three different ways to describe what fellowship is. And those are going to be our next three sermons, Lord willing. They each bear witness to the three things that we share or have in common. Let me go ahead and give give you what those three are so you know where we're going the next several weeks when we talk about fellowship. Fellowship, first of all, includes what we share with each other. That is a mutual responsibility in Christ to help each other grow in the faith. So we're going to talk about growth next week. Second, fellowship includes what we share in together. It's our common inheritance in Christ that we are called to guard and protect by preserving unity in the body of Christ. And finally, fellowship includes what we share out together. It's our common service to each other and to our community. That's what fellowship is. 
It's sharing with each other in our mutual responsibility to look out for each other, care for one another, love each other. It's our responsibility to share in our inheritance and to preserve it and protect it and guard it. And it's our sharing out together in a common form of service or a joint participation in a united purpose together to glorify God, to make disciples. So, those are the three other aspects of fellowship that we'll look at, Lord willing, in the next few weeks. But this morning, there's something more preliminary that we want to talk about and that must take place if we're going to devote ourselves to those other aspects of fellowship. Those other aspects of fellowship, the growing, the guarding, the giving, will never happen without gathering. We must gather. We must be committed to regular assembly together. Because before we do anything together, we have to be together. Now, we see this in the early church in Acts 2, that they were committed to regular assembly together. Verse 44 of Acts chapter 2 says, all who believed were together. They were together. Verse 46, and day by day attending the temple together. Now, that was a unique period, okay? They were, they were out of town. Lots of people had migrated in to Jerusalem for the time period during a special season. And people were gathering at the temple every day together. So the point is not have church 8 a.m. every morning, come here. That's not the point. The point is they were getting together and they were getting together often. So you, me, as a, as a baptized Christian, are responsible to attend church regularly. Scripture could not be clearer about this fundamental responsibility. If you do not attend, that is, if you don't regularly come together with the church, you cannot fulfill the other aspects of fellowship that we will talk about in the coming weeks. Attendance makes everything else possible. If we don't gather with the church, we can't obey a significant number of God's commands. Now, I received a, a helpful email this week, our pastors did, from a brother in our church. And I just asked if I could share this with you, part of it, because it was underscoring this very point. I don't think his intention was in any way to uh, get in the sermon. In fact, he would prefer not to be, but he was gracious to me and let me quote him anonymously. But, um, but he was just encouraging because his heart and desire is to cultivate fellowship in our body. And he writes the following. He says, it's my contention that a body of believers is more likely to pray together and for each other more, to support each other more, to lean on each other more, to hold each other accountable more if they know each other more. That is, their fellow church members are more than Christian acquaintances. He says, it's my opinion that when dark providences occur, it will be easier for our body of believers to be in one accord if they have regularly practiced it when life is good. The only way for us to know each other is to be together often. End quote. It's exactly the point of Acts 2, the exactly a point of Hebrews 10. So this morning, we're going to talk about the importance of gathering with the local church when it meets. And to unpack that, we're going to look at Hebrews 10 and answer three questions, working backwards from verse 31 up to verse 19. So a little bit different. We normally go straight down the passage, but this morning, we're going to go backwards up through the passage. So put the car in reverse, check your mirrors, and be careful that you don't bump into anything. But we're going to go backwards through the passage this morning because I think the emphasis is important to do it this way. So here's the first question. Why is it so important to gather together? 
why is it so important to meet together as the church? And verses 26 through 31 give us that answer, and it's some of the most sobering verses in the entire New Testament, and definitely in the book of Hebrews. You notice the connection, the little connection four in verse 26? I think most of us are familiar. We've probably heard sermons on verses 24 and 25. You know, any good pastor worth his salt over a period of time is going to call the church to meet together. So we love to preach Hebrews 10, 25. Let us not, let us meet together. You know, some of you are in a bad habit of doing that. You're not getting together. As a, and then we stop there. We just say, look, you need to, you know, Bible says, let's consider how to stir one another up. Let's not neglect to meet together. The day's drawing near. Jesus is coming soon. Let's keep, keep at it. But then they stop. Hebrews doesn't stop. He didn't stop. He kept going. He put four there. Whenever you come across a four, you need to ask what it's there for. And it's there to reinforce what he just said. Notice what he just said? He said, all right, let's meet together. Why? You don't want to go to hell, do you? You don't want to go to hell, do you? That's the, way, that's the way he argues. And that sounds so strange to us. I mean, he says, for if we go on sinning deliberately, which meeting together is supposed to curb us from doing, keep us off the path of sin. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And he says in verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who's trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? Verse 31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. To fail to gather together with other Christians puts our souls in danger. That's his point. The author threatens final judgment on people who do not regularly gather with the church. Not because they're doing so somehow disqualifies them from inheriting heaven because you got to punch your ticket 467 times to get in. Like, okay, how many times have I come to church? 525? Okay, God knows that. That's good. I'll get in. That's not the point. The point is what happens to us in our hearts over time when we fail to regularly meet and gather together as God's people. The stakes couldn't be higher for the writer. He's writing to Christians, writing to us, and saying, terrifying expectation of judgment, fury of fire, consume the adversaries, rendering a punishment worse than death, repaying vengeance, terrifying to fall into the hands of the living God. I wonder, do you have a category for this kind of motivation in your Christian life? Do you have a category for it? I think we need to have categories for this. Some of us have so thought about the gospel that if we're not attaching every single command in the Bible to grace and justification by faith and the cross and forgiveness, then there's just that's the only motivation that there is in the Bible. There are lots of motivations that the Bible gives us that are all rooted in the gospel. The gospel promises and the gospel makes threats. And this is an example of a gospel threat. It's good news to know this. It's good news for the Lord to tell us this about our propensities and about ourselves. 
And it's good for us to know the various ways in which the Bible and God motivates us. Kevin DeYoung, in his very important book, which I would encourage you to read, I think there's one copy on our bookshelf, uh, called The Hole in Our Holiness, very important book, helpful book, writes the following. He says, one of the reasons why I think Christians get tired of hearing about the law is because they never hear why they should obey the law. The imperatives hit us like a ton of study Bibles because we aren't given any motivation for keeping God's commands. Jesus is the great physician, and like any good doctor, he writes different prescriptions for different illnesses. The gospel is always the remedy for the guilt of our sin, but when it comes to overcoming the presence of sin, Jesus has many doses at his disposal. He knows that personalities and sins and situations all vary. So what might be good motivation for holiness in a certain situation with a particular person facing a specific sin may not be the best prescription for someone else in different circumstances. Jesus has many medicines for our motivation. He's not like a high school athletic trainer who tells everyone to ice it and take a couple ibuprofen. He's not some quack doctor who always prescribes bloodletting. High cholesterol? Here's a leech. Overactive bladder? I got a leech for that. Gout, a couple leeches will take the edge off. The good news is that the Bible's a big, diverse, wise, wise book, and in it you find a variety of prescriptions to encourage obedience in God's commands. And then for the next four pages, he lists about 27 different ones. 27 different medicines that Jesus uses at his disposal to keep us on the path to life, to keep us walking with him. And this text contains a wonderful Medicine of gospel threat. It's great. It's wonderful. It's precious. Why do we need gospel threats? Why do we need warnings? Why do we need things like that? Why is it important? John Owen writes that gospel threatenings aimed at believers are, quote, suited unto their good and advantage, for believers are subject to sloth and security to wax dead, dull, cold, and formal in their course, to awake them, warn them, and excite them unto the renewal of their obedience, God sets before them threatenings, end quote. Now, this is not what you think when you think of, oh, the hellfire brimstone preacher beating the pulpit, yelling at the people, repent, 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 repent. That's certainly biblical and a good thing to do. But that's not the point here. The point is a serious, gospel-informed, gospel-shaped, motivating threat to, to, to people who would not feel like meeting together with the church, which is all of us from time to time. So, Let's, let's talk about this just a little bit, and then we're going we're gonna to move into our second point about why, why this is so important to gather together. When, when is God this way? When does God begin to, to, to exercise these sorts of warning calls? Well, he, the answer is he is this way in verse 26 when he says there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That sounds amazing. What do you mean? You could actually get to a point where there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. I mean, didn't Jesus die and 
his blood is sufficient for all sin at all times. Yeah, but his blood isn't effective to people who aren't believers. And you can reveal yourself to not be a believer by the way you respond to God. Whether you take his word seriously or not. So there's not a sacrifice for sin to a person who isn't clinging to Jesus. And you can reveal yourself to not be clinging to Jesus when you don't obey God's word. So notice this, verse 26. If we go on sinning deliberately, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment. The point is, is if you continue to, you hear God's word, you know what it says, and you deliberately and willfully and intentionally time and time and time and time and time again ignore it and refuse it, you're revealing yourself to not be a believer. You're revealing yourself to not be a Christian. Because Christians say Jesus is Lord. He calls the shots. What his word says I do. What his word says I strive to bring my life in a line with imperfectly, but really. I take his word seriously. He said, I'm not, I'm not setting aside what he's told me. He says in verse 28, look, people who set aside what Moses said, they, re- they received a pretty strict pun- punishment. How much worse will Moses set aside what Jesus said? Because what they're revealing is they're just trampling underfoot the Son of God. They're ignoring what he says. They're, they're outraging the Spirit of grace. So, he, he has this language of sinning willfully and trampling the Son of God and disregarding the blood of the covenant and insulting or outraging the Spirit of grace. It might be helpful to define what he means by sinning deliberately here. Okay, because this is, this is an important concept in Scripture and, uh, and it's important for us to understand. What is willful sin? What is deliberate? What is sin? Go on sinning deliberately. It doesn't mean that you sin. Or that you commit sin. It means that you are stubborn and refusing to repent of your sin when it, when it is made, made, made known to you. You're going to keep going and disregarding God's call to repent of your sin. David in Psalm 19 sees a difference between sins that we commit because they sneak up on us, like he calls them hidden faults in Psalm 19 verse 12. And sins that we commit because we presume to know better than God and presume that sin is not a big deal. And he calls those presumptuous sins in Psalm 19, verse 13. The point is not that there's a special category of extra bad sins. The point is that there's a special category of sinning. Namely, sinning and arrogant defiance of what you know God has told you to do. There are, these are sins that are fully intentional. They're done with eyes wide open and with a heart that says, look, I know that God says that's wrong and harmful, but I don't care what God thinks. I'm going to do it anyway. And when we get into a habit and a practice of that kind of life, and it goes on and on and on and on and is never repented of, it is revelatory that you're not a Christian. What is interesting is he makes it clear that these people exist in the church. 
They are those who have received a knowledge of the truth. Did you see that? Verse 26, they go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. So they've heard the gospel. They may have even claimed to believe it and embrace it. They may have been baptized. They might have joined the church. They might be on the membership right now. And so they have in some sense been sanctified. They've been set apart. They're, they've identified with the people of God. They've recognized, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm with these people. They've marked themselves off in some sense in an, as an external, in an external way. But nevertheless, they deliberately keep on sinning. John Piper says the following about these people. He says, this seems to describe the religious separation and outward purification that often happens when a person becomes part of the visible church. They come under the influence of the truth in preaching and teaching. They come under the influence of love among the saints. They come under the influence of the ordinances and even eat and drink the sacred emblems of Christ's body and blood. They feel the blowing of God's spirit of grace and taste his wooing and winning influences. And in all of this, they are visibly set apart from the world, sanctified the way the people of Israel was sanctified among the nations, even though many of them were faithless. And brothers and sisters, this is why we gather. This is why we gather. To avoid putting ourselves and others in this condition. Why is it this way? Why is it this way with us? Because we are sheep. We are prone to go our own way. There is enough sin in the regenerate child of God that should feel and be treated with great fear on the part of the Christian. We should not cozy up with our remaining sin. We should not say, oh, Jesus paid for it. He defeated it. I don't have to fight it. No. He paid for it and defeated it so that you would fight it. And you reveal that he paid for it and defeated it because you fight it. And because these warnings resonate with you. They go, oh, God, don't let me be that way. I don't want to be that way. I don't want to be that way. I want to be yours. Don't let me stray. Don't let me go away. Keep me here. Do I believe in perseverance of the saints? Yes. Do I believe that a Christian can lose their salvation? No. I just believe people who claim to be Christians can show themselves not to be. By the way they respond to God's word. We, we read a text like this, and what intended effect is it to have on us as the people of God? i got to meet together. i got to be with the church. i got to be encouraged. I've got to stay close to God. If we don't receive a regular stream of encouragement coming into our lives from our brothers and sisters in Christ, we subject ourselves to the potential hardening effects of sin. If I had time, I would turn us to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Put it in your notes. Hebrews 3, 12 to 14. That's a very, very important text to underscore what I'm preaching this morning and why I'm preaching it this way. Without intentional faith-building encouragement from other Christians, we lose our zeal, 
We drift from God. We become hardened in the deceitfulness of sin. And if someone doesn't snatch us, we may make shipwreck of our so-called faith and perish in unbelief. So then the next question gives us the blueprint for what we can do to keep this from happening. Okay, so why is it so important to gather with the church? To receive the sort of encouragement that we need to preserve us from the hardening effects of sin in our lives. So what do we do when we gather together? Verse 24 and 25 answer the question. We encourage one another. We encourage one another. See that? And let us consider how to stir stir one another up. It, it acknowledges that we probably come together in a pretty loose, dead, dull condition. We need to be stirred up to love one another and to do good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So that is the remedy to avoid verses 26 through 31. So the way we avoid t- verses 26 through 31 is by obeying 24 and 25. So what do we do when we gather together? Well, let me, let's talk about what we don't do. Okay? It isn't just singing songs, you know, giving tithes, joining in some prayers, listening to some preaching, saying hi to some people. Those are all means to an end. The bigger means is encouragement. Our goal in singing together, praying together, being in community groups together, sharing at the Lord's Supper together, is to encourage one another. The goal of gathering is not to gather. The goal of gathering is to encourage. Not merely to be encouraged, but to encourage. We gather for the benefit of each other. In giving ourselves to the encouragement of others, we ourselves will be encouraged. But make no mistake, we gather not fundamentally and first to be encouraged, but to encourage. So what do we need to be committed to, or why do we need to be committed to encouraging one another? Because everyone is struggling at various levels. We're all struggling. We can see an example of true fellowship and true community in action when we look at the biblical mandate to share one another's sufferings. This is fellowship. I mean, Paul in, Acts, in Romans chapter 12 calls us to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. And so we're called to take each other's suffering as our own and to take each other's joy as our own and to share in each other's joys and to share in each other's sufferings. Did you notice something here? That this passage doesn't warn us that when we skip church, we put ourselves at risk. It warns us that when we skip church, we put other people at risk. Now, you do put yourself at risk, but that's not the point. You put other people at risk. The first sin of failing to gather together with the church is the sin of failing to love other people. Now, when he says that we need to do this all the more as you see the day drawing near, it's because we're getting closer, and the writer assumed this as well, but closer and closer every day to the return of Jesus. And what did Jesus predict about these last days that we're living in? 
He promised that they would be days of great stress. He promised that they would be days of great tribulation. He promises that they would be days of great evil and, in temp- and temptation. And we need each other now more than ever. Matthew 24, 12. And because lawlessness will be increased, this is what, this is what Jesus said would happen before he comes. Because lawlessness will be increased, what will happen? Society will break down? Sure. People will have more stress? Sure. That's not the greatest fear. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. That's the greatest danger. That is what we are after together as a church. Preventing that from happening. Preventing frostbite of the heart. In all of our interaction together, that the love will be stirred, not grow cold toward Jesus or other people. It's going to happen if we don't meet together. We will grow cold. We will grow indifferent. We will walk away from Jesus if we don't leave it, if we don't check that, or a brother or sister doesn't check that in our lives. Tim Challies writes, gathering with God's people is not first about being blessed, but about being a blessing. It's not first about getting, but about giving. And as we prepare to worship on Sunday morning, our first consideration should be how to stir up one another to love and good works. We should approach Sunday deliberately, eager to do good to others, to be a blessing to them. In those times we feel our zeal waning, when we feel the temptation to skip out on a Sunday or withdraw altogether, we should consider our God-given responsibility to encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And of course, our commitment to the local church is far more than a commitment to Sunday morning services. It's a commitment to the other people through all of life. It's a commitment to worship with them once or twice a week, then to fellowship with them, to serve them, to pray for them all throughout the week. It's to bind ourselves together in a covenant in which we promise to do good to them, to make them the special object of our attention and encouragement. That's the vision of the New Testament church. So I ask you to take stock of your life this morning. Where are you in verse 25? There are only two groups. Those who gather to encourage each other and those who form the habit of not doing so. So I think the next question gives us the reason for why some of us can be tempted to not gather. So number three, the final question, what must we do before we gather? What must we do before we gather? Okay, so if it's so important to gather because we don't want to be falling away from God as a result of the hardening effects of sin in our lives, the means is to encourage one another when we gather together. So what do we have to do before we gather? That's verses 19 through 23. So let's read those verses again. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The one command, the one exhortation, the one thing that is most needful for us when we're not with the church but we're going to come back together to assemble with the church what do we do in between we need to draw near to god ourselves please please 
draw near to God. Please draw near to God. We need you to draw near to God. Every single one of you draw near to God. Because the more you draw near to God, the more effective and helpful you will be in encouraging and strengthening other people. All right? That's why it's so important. Now, here's the incentive to draw near, and we get so much rich encouragement gospel incentive here. Don't draw near to God in a fearful way. Draw near in a reverential way. But listen, look how he encourages you. Since we have confidence, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Jesus has cleansed us from our sin. He has provided access to God the Father. We have absolute confidence in drawing near to him. Verse 20, through his flesh, he opened up a way to God. And then verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, we have someone who's interceding for us. Our Savior, our our Jesus is interceding for us. His righteousness is our righteousness. His death is our death. His life is our life. We're in union with him. We have confidence to enter into God's presence through him. So as a result of that confidence, draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith that I am his, that he is mine, that I belong to him. And with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In other words, in an ongoing state of repentance toward God not holding on to sin, letting go of sin, confessing sin, repenting of sin, dealing with sin. See, because if we don't do that, we can't encourage other people because we're going to be so run down and run over by sin ourselves that we don't have anything to give anybody else. So if you love people and if you love God, you will draw near to God yourself in full assurance and full confidence of faith so that you might be able to encourage others. Tim Challies again, and with this quote, I'm going to wrap us up. If I love the people in my church, I will grow in holiness for their sake. I am growing in holiness so that I can help others grow in holiness. I am putting sin to death so I can help others put sin to death. If this is true, that sanctification and progress and spiritual growth are to the benefit of my brothers and sisters in Christ, it must also be true that sin and lack of spiritual growth are to to the disadvantage of my brothers and sisters in Christ. When I refuse to put sin to death, when I refuse to grow, when I choose to sin, I effectively take action against the people I claim to love. End quote. I hope this sermon puts a whole other other uh, category for your thinking about why it's important to meet together. It's eternally important. It's, it's not just, it's not just a, a, a thing, yeah, we'll do it if we don't have other plans. No. No. No, that's, that's, that's unbiblical thinking. Why mu- what, mu- what must we do before we gather together? We're going to draw near to God, deal with my sin. I'm going to fight sin. I'm going to pursue holiness. Why must, what, what do we do when we gather? We gather to encourage one another. In smaller gatherings, in the big gathering, and in, in whatever gatherings we find, in a fellowship in our homes, and over meals, and just when we're seeing each other, or talking to each other, or texting each other, or interacting with each other in other ways, we're seeking to encourage each other, checking in with each other spiritually. And then, 
Why is that so important? So that we'll all safely make it to glory. Carried by each other through the Lord Jesus, who enabled us and gave us grace to be a New Testament church. Let's pray. And worship team, please come. Father, we thank you so much for the different medicines that you give us in your word. Sometimes they're hard to go down. Sometimes it's hard to swallow. But we thank you that it's in your word for our good. And you are the great physician, the good physician, Lord Jesus, and you give us exactly what we need to help us. May all of us this morning be strengthened through your word and through the encouragement of the scriptures. May we have hope and new resolve to love one another as you have loved us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that in order to rescue us from our hardness and deadness and sin, you came down and you made a way. You ripped the curtain in half and you opened up the Holy of Holies through your blood and by, the, by your flesh. And you gave us confident, fully assured access to your Father, paying for all of our sins, rising from the dead, conquering sin and death once and for all, and uniting us with yourself through the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have, that you have made this way possible for us. And we, we pray that we would be more intentional and more deliberate in meeting together and, and that we would seek to encourage one another when we do so and that we would do it all the more as we see the day drawing near, knowing that the love of many will grow cold. And so we pray that we, you would give us grace to fight for one another. Fight for one another's joy in you. Fight for one another's holiness. Fight for one another's encouragement. Pray, bear burdens, come alongside each other in sufferings and joys. Help hold each other up. And thank you for the many, many ways that is already happening. It's why you've sustained so many of us to this very day. Uh, may faces come to our minds even now of people you have used in this church, in this assembly, in our lives, in our families who have brought us back when we were straying and who gave us grace and showed us you. So we pray that we would do that time and time again for each other until the day comes when we will no longer need to do it because this old world with all of its sin and brokenness will have passed away and all things will have become new and we will inherit the kingdom of our God and Savior where righteousness, joy, and peace will reign forevermore. Until that day, Keep us watchful, keep us vigilant, keep us earnest, keep us sober, keep us fighting. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.